in this section for the next three weeks, what you will notice uh, is basically that Mark keeps setting up a contrast between two groups of people, okay? And so, for example, this morning, we're going to see great crowds, and then we're going to see the disciples. And then next, we're going to see uh, the opposition against Jesus uh, in contrast with his followers. And then finally, and this one's the most interesting, Jesus's family, his siblings and his mother come looking for him, and those who he reaches around the room and he says, this is my family, okay? Everyone is a contrast. That's intentional. It's on purpose. In fact, let me show you this very quickly. I want you to notice in Mark chapter 3, go ahead and turn there if you haven't yet, Mark's gospel chapter 3. If you look with me at verse 20, right in the middle of the chapter, it says, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And so there's this reference to his family in route, if you will. They set out from home to come and talk to Jesus. And then suddenly in verse 22, it jumps to a different issue. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And so he has this whole conversation with him uh, all the way up. And then verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Do you notice how he leaves that thread alone, goes and talks about something else, and then comes back to it again? Okay. Mark does this all the time, so much so that scholars actually call this literary technique a Markin sandwich. Okay. It's pretty easy to look at. You can call it a Markin Oreo if you like. The idea is basically that we have two external pieces, the bread or the Oreo cookie, that are exactly the same, and then a middle that seems off topic, but by putting it in the middle, by juxtaposing it with the others, he's actually trying to make a point, okay? He does this over and over in his gospel. In fact, some scholars argue that the entire gospel of Mark is a Mark and sandwich. And so you have who is Jesus at the front, you have the death of Jesus at the back, and then you have that discipleship cluster right in the middle, like I mentioned earlier, okay? And so, all of that to say, it's clear here that Mark's intent for us this morning is, although he wouldn't use this phrase, to define the relationship. He wants us to see where the lines are. Are we in or are we out? Are we for or are we against? Are we with or not with? Those are the issues at hand. And this morning, the issue is being part of the crowd or being a disciple of Jesus. To put it differently, we are going to see that there's two different ways to follow Jesus. There's whole crowds of people following Jesus, and then there are the disciples, the followers of Jesus, and it's not the same thing. So let's go ahead and read together, picking up here in verse 7 of chapter 3. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for, be, for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseased, diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. 
and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name uh, Boandrinus, which is the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Let's pray. Jesus, you spoke very frankly about uh, the necessity of a relationship with you. You defined the destiny of our lives, the significance of our lives. You defined the outcome of eternity around uh, our relationship with you. And so I pray, Lord, as we look at these things, uh, we would really understand where we are, that you would speak to our hearts, that there'd be no deception. Uh, and for those of us who, who know that we know that we know that we're your disciples, I pray that we would be uh, reminded anew what that means uh, and that we would not just know the status of our relationship, but as Pastor Nick mentioned this morning, that we would enjoy that status, that we would enter in, that we would pursue and develop our relationship with you. We pray this in your name. Amen. One of the things you see throughout the Gospel of Mark is this tension between Jesus' compassion that leads him out to the crowds where there are needs, where there are uh, those who need healing, where there are those who need teaching, where there are those who are dealing with demonic oppression and need deliverance. Um, And at the same time, you constantly see him drawing, pulling out, moving towards the wilderness. And one of the reasons, as we see this morning, is because part of what Jesus is seeking to do during this ministry is to raise up these disciples, right? And so he calls these 12 men to be with him for the next two and a half years, all the way through his death, and it's these self-same men that he commissions to go and carry the message of the gospel out into the world, the apostles, right? And so they have a different relationship with Jesus than everyone else. In fact, we also see this morning a larger group of disciples uh, that are also present with Jesus and have this kind of inner circle status. But it's not that they're enjoying, you know, um, some sort of golden tier benefits, okay? What they are, though, are the ones who understand who Jesus is, and so he's constantly getting away to teach them. He's constantly getting away. In fact, we'll see in the Gospel of Mark uh, that everyone in the crowds, he speaks in parables, in stories. But to his disciples, he speaks frankly. He gives interpretation. He explains what's going on. Okay, this division only gets stronger throughout the book. Um, But we see that tension here in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Notice that? Okay, what's just been happening at the end of chapter 3 and beforehand is opposition against Jesus is rising. Okay, the religious leaders uh, of Jesus' day are standing against him and beginning to plot his death. And so it's at this point he goes, okay, we need to get away. 
And so he goes with the disciples, but we see here a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea. In fact, notice that phrase there for crowd is repeated three times in, in just as many verses. A great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Okay. Now, I want you to notice a few things about this uh, crowd. First off, our author here says that it's a great crowd. Now, uh, I think it's easy, especially if you've ever seen any films about Jesus, uh, to think in, in terms of dozens and hundreds. That's very unlikely. The distance of Jesus' reputation here extends beyond Galilee, where he's living, all the way to southern Israel, Judea and Jerusalem, and even beyond southern Israel into Tyre and Sidon, which are outside the nation, as well as on the other side of the Jordan. This is a large range of people, and so we should probably be thinking in the thousands. In fact, the crowd is so significant here, Mark tells us that, uh, that Jesus is keeping a boat on standby because they're literally pushing him into the Sea of Galilee, just trying to get close enough to touch him, okay? Uh, and so, so it's a really, relatively overwhelming scenario. Um, and then I want you to notice that the reason that they are coming, it says there in, um, uh, in verse 10, he healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around to touch him. Okay? And in fact, in, at the end of verse 8, it says the great crowd heard all that he was doing and came to him. Okay? This crowd has developed because Jesus is doing things that no one else has ever done. He's making lame men walk. He's taking blind men, and now they see. Uh, in, in a few places in the gospel, he's even attending funerals and reversing funerals, bringing people back to life. Uh, he's encountering the demonic possessed and casting out demons and people who, uh, you know, as we'll see later in the gospel, who are ostracized from society because of their problems are introduced back in. All of these things are happening. It's those deeds, it's those acts that have preceded Jesus's presence and driven people at long distances on foot to come and get a glimpse, to bring their problems before him. And I want you to notice here, he meets those needs. He deals with those problems. He continues to heal those people. In fact, there's another occasion later in Jesus's gospel, or later in the gospel of Mark in Jesus's ministry, uh, where Jesus has just heard about the death of John the Baptist. John is Jesus's cousin, and he's also self-identified as the forerunner of Jesus's ministry. He came uh, to be the final prophet. All the prophets in the Old Testament paint this picture of the coming Messiah. He's coming, they all say. He's coming. He's getting nearer, says Daniel. Isaiah says it's almost time. And John is the one who says he's here. The one who comes. The one who I will see as I baptize with the Spirit descending. The one who comes after me. I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. Right? This is John's ministry. And so in a significant way, John understands Jesus. And when Jesus hears that he's been beheaded by King Herod, uh, he grieves. And the disciples come home from a, from a trip, and they come back, and Jesus says, we need to get away into the wilderness. He wants time to recharge, to mourn, to spend in, uh, you know, just with his disciples. And so they get in a boat, and they travel across the lake, and Jesus is so popular that people see him in the boat, and they decide to run around 
the Sea of Galilee and meet him on the other side. Okay. And so he finds the same crowd he left waiting for him on the other shore, and it says that he had compassion on them, for he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, so he taught them. But the thing is, the other side of the Sea of Galilee uh, is a little bit more barren. It's not as populated. It's not a place where people live. And so here's all of these people who are a half day's journey away from home and have nothing to eat. And that's where Jesus does this miracle of feeding the 5,000. Okay? Jesus' compassion is inexhaustible. But when we get to the second part of the passage, we have this second group. Okay, and so here we have the crowds, they're massive, they know of Jesus' reputation, and they're demonstrating a significant amount of faith. Now, what do I mean by faith? They know that if they can just get near Jesus, their problems will be taken care of. That's a striking belief system, is it not? They know if they can just touch him, if they can just get close enough, uh, you know, this disease they've dealt with for decades or this paralysis that they were born with or the condition, you know, that has no treatment like blindness will be taken care of. It's amazing. They've traveled great distances and so they are, um, they are committed to coming into contact with Jesus. And then we have the, the disciples, and like I said, this includes the 12 we know as apostles, and then clearly a larger group. And there it's different. Uh, look at verse 13. He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Okay, and then we have the name of the 12 disciples. What I think would be valuable for us this morning is to um, compare and to contrast these two groups. And so let me just ask you frankly, do you know where you stand this morning? Where are you? Are you part of the crowds that pressed in around Jesus? Uh, or are you in this other group, the disciples? Okay. Now, what are the differences here? Let's go back uh, to the crowds and look. Okay. First off, I want you to recognize, again, that the crowds had a significant understanding of who Jesus was. They saw him as a miracle worker, and as I mentioned earlier, traveled great distances because they had needs that they felt that Jesus could meet. Okay. Uh, they, um, they understood that Jesus was unique. Now, I imagine if you, if you polled the crowd... They're going to be all over the place on what they think all of this means. They're all going to be at different places, okay? Although we're talking about two different groups here, I don't want you to see those as uh, two different conditions, at like a light switch, yes or no. Instead, it's probably better to think of this as an uh, entire trajectory moving across the way. And there's a line in between these two groups. But on both sides of it, they're all over the place of what's going on, okay? Some of the people in these crowds are suspicious of Jesus. They're here with arms crossed, curious, but expecting to be able to see through what's going on, okay? Others have personal touch points with Jesus. Well, I know what Jesus did for my nephew. I heard what Jesus did for my neighbor. Right? I've, I've, I have personal contact. Others have just seen the crowd and go, I don't know where all these people are going, but something's going on. Remember, this is the ancient world. Okay? 
When you hear a crowd of people outdoors, you go out and go, I wonder what's going on. We don't do that, do we? When I hear a crowd of people on Capitol Hill, I generally lock my door, right? <laughs> uh, but, but in this day and age, a crowd would draw a crowd significantly because it was such a rare thing. Um, I also want you to notice, once again, I want to repeat the fact that Jesus cares for these crowds. This is what he's doing. In fact, we could argue this morning, absolutely, that one of the reasons Jesus calls the disciples at this moment in time is because he needs help. Okay? Because he has come to reach Israel, and now Israel is coming to him, and it's, uh, it's too much for one man. He raises up these disciples to do what? The same things that he's doing. He gives them the authority to preach the same message that he's preaching. He gives them the power to heal and to cast out demons just as Jesus is doing. In fact, a little bit later on, once they've been schooled up a little bit, uh, he sends them out on their own in pairs. And he says, okay, now you do the work and I will follow after. Okay? And so there is a sense here where even the calling of the twelve is universal in its nature. Whatever it is that Jesus is doing here, he's not just coming for this small group of people and saying, you're the only ones I'm interested in. Everyone else can go to hell. That's not the idea. Okay? It's strategic. It's strategic here. There's a relationship between the crowds and the disciples. And one of those relationships is the disciples came right out of the crowds. They're not elected out of a different area. They're not taken out of a different box. They're not even kept you know, hermetically sealed off from the crowds. Uh, but in the other sense, also, the disciples have a vested interest in the crowds, okay? But there are some significant differences between the two groups. Again, look with me at verse 13. He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. That's the first place we see a difference between these two groups, right? Right? The crowds are coming because they desire Jesus. But here it says that Jesus handpicked, called by name, pointed out of the crowd, and selected those whom he desired. Now remember, this is more than just the apostles. This is a group that's significantly larger, at least, at least another 72, because he's going to send out at least another 72 on another mission. Okay, so this ring we call disciples uh, it is at least, you know, what is that? More than 80 people, 84 people, okay? It's a group here, but it says here that he called those who he desired and they came to him, okay? The crowd is investigating Jesus. They're interested. They've come to their own conclusions. They're seeking Jesus. But the disciples understand that Jesus is seeking them. Now, this call is a significant one. It might be hard to see if you've not experienced it, if you've not encountered it, but it's something we see throughout Jesus' ministry. Occasionally, someone is so impressed with Jesus, they put together more than that he's just a source of power. And they come and they go, there's a significance here. I think Jesus is the Messiah. I think he's the one we've been waiting for. I think he's the secret to God's plans for Israel. And so one of them is a man, he, uh, he's a ruler of the synagogue, he's young and he's wealthy, and he's devoted his life to following God. And he comes to Jesus and he says, 
Look, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what does the law say? He starts to reiterate the Ten Commandments taken from Deuteronomy and Exodus. And the rich young ruler says, all of those I've devoted myself to since my youth. And Jesus says, you're only lacking one thing. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and come and follow me. I want you to see that for what it is. It's a call. It's a line in the sand. And this is something you see throughout Jesus' ministry is either that Jesus draws a line and invites people to cross a threshold or people come assuming, knowing, feeling that threshold and ask Jesus, why can't I go through the door? What's missing? And I want to be clear here. The problem with the rich young ruler is not that he has wealth. It's that his wealth has him. Okay. I, I always think of it this way, and I feel like I can illustrate this way fairly. Because if you haven't seen this movie, I don't feel bad anymore. But if you think of The Sixth Sense, okay? Let me just, okay, Bruce Willis is dead. That's, that's where we need to start, right? But there's this constant repeated scene throughout the movie where Bruce Willis comes home, sees his wife on the couch or something like that, and he walks up to this door in his front hall. And you just see him try the handle over and over and over, and the door never opens. But after he realizes he's not alive, after he realizes, he comes back, and now he can see what the problem is. There's actually a small table blocking the door. The reason the door wouldn't open is because there was something blocking the door. It wasn't the door, okay? Selling all you have and giving to the poor is not how you become a disciple of Jesus. But for this man, he couldn't go through the door because that was in the way. He couldn't follow Jesus and his money. And Jesus knows that personally and intimately, and so he draws a line in the sand. There's a call. Now, in fact, the New Testament goes further, and it recognizes the fact that the way salvation works, a restored relationship with God, okay, the dealing with our sin and guilt, all of these different angles being the same thing, the way that it works begins with God as initiator and not with us. Okay? Now, this is true in the biggest and broadest sense, and it's been true throughout the history that the Bible records all the way back in the beginning Although it's Adam who ruins the relationship, who breaks the rules, who brings death and distance between him and God, it's not Adam who goes looking for God to make things right. It's God who comes looking for Adam. Right? It's God who comes and says, Adam, where are you? It's God who interrogates and draws out a confession. It's God who, yes, lays out consequences, but also makes a promise and says, I'm going to fix it. As he says, I'm going to put enmity between the descendant of the woman and the seed of the serpent. He starts to speak of this messianic promise. He says, I'm going to send a savior, effectively, right there. And even there, what did Adam and Eve do about their sins? They felt naked. They felt ashamed. They make coverings for themselves out of fig leaves. God says, that's not going to work. And he kills. He takes the first life in the record of human history, an animal, and he clothes them with skins. Okay, all of those are lessons pointing forward. All of that is fulfilled out. When it comes to Israel, who initiates? Does Abraham go, I want to go find the one true God? No. God is, or Abraham is in the city of Ur, worshiping the moon god like all of his neighbors, and God just speaks to him and says, come out to something better. 
And when his descendants are living in Egypt, they have the promises that God's going to bring them out. Is it they that cry to God? No, God comes for them. Judges with a mighty hand the kingdom of Egypt. Brings Israel out and despite their constant rebellion and resistance, does successfully bring them into the land. All of these things are the case. And so when we get to the New Testament, we need to understand that for us as individuals, God's work precedes our response. Always. That's really, really hard to understand if you're not currently a Christian. It's really, really hard to see from the outside. Like the rich young ruler, you can see that gate and go, there's something here, but you don't know what it is. But the New Testament points out the fact uh, that in the same way that Jesus calls to him who he desire, it's Jesus who calls. In fact, he tells the disciples later, he says, look, all 12 of you, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Okay. Now, the thing that that says for us uh, is, is very simple this morning, is in defining our own relationship, in discerning our own place, have you encountered that threshold? I'll put it for you another way. Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is worthy to be my disciple. What is that picture of? The picture is of final and total commitment. No going back. Okay. There's a lot of ways we could talk about this. Surrender is a good one. That's helpful for me. It's also personal for me because that's what it was like when I had this experience in my life. I grew up in the church. I would have identified as a disciple, but I was just part of the crowd. I knew Jesus by reputation. I sought to seek needs that Jesus, uh, Jesus could meet, but I hadn't had that threshold moment where it was either Jesus is Lord or I am. Either I make my choices or I surrender my choices to Jesus. Either I'm on the inside or on the outside. And it came to me in the middle of the night when I couldn't sleep as a teenager, and I just looked at what I had been doing with my life, and it was havoc. It wreaked chaos in my family. It wreaked chaos in my friend group. Uh, I was dealing with all of these things that were too much for me, and I rolled out of my bed and onto my face on the floor, and I said, it's yours. Okay. Now, I didn't really feel the significance of that moment then, but I do now. Because this and that are different. Because in and out are opposite. Because life and death are not the same thing. Because light and darkness are different. And that is a point where, where I would say with confidence, I experienced what the New Testament calls conversion, regeneration, new life. Okay. But it begins with a call. It begins with feeling that line in the sand uh, and it's come and follow. And it's something that we have to recognize with a little bit of sobriety this morning. Like the rich young ruler, he's been living on the fringes of Jesus's ministry for a while, watching, learning, listening. When he comes, he has to make a decision if he's going to move in, and it tells us that he went away sad. Now maybe, maybe he went away sad and sat with it for a while and then changed his mind and came in, but I promise you that for many, when they felt that line in the sand, and they chose to go away, they chose to go away for good. Okay. That calling, that calling is a provocation. For all of us this morning, you need to understand uh, that 
that studying Jesus, determining who he is, investigating Christianity, uh, it is not objective in the sense that it can just be weighed uh, and, and kept distance from your life. Jesus identifies himself as the way, the truth, and the life. No one can know God the Father except through him. Jesus identifies himself as the judge of all living people and all dead people, the one whom we will all give an account and the truth is, we can't be neutral about that. You have to come to conclusions, and those conclusions have consequences. Either you say, yes, you are who you say you are, and that means certain things, or you say no, and you walk away. But you can't just whittle Jesus down to a comfortable size and take him with you. You can't. But we need to reflect on the fact that if you identify as a disciple of Jesus this morning, he initiated, we responded. He called. We came to him. In fact, notice verse 14 says, he appointed 12. Now these 12 are specific. They're unique. They're the ones we know as apostles. They're the ones whose authority is vested in the New Testament. They're the ones who speak authoritatively for Jesus after his resurrection. Um, but that word appointed is an interesting one. Appointed uh, here is in the Greek, the origin of our word poem. He appointed, he composed, would be a good way to put it. He appointed 12, and even here we get a significant thing. In fact, let's just recognize a place where the crowds and the disciples are not different this morning. Okay, The difference here is not that these 12 are the upper echelon or the top tier of righteousness or ability or goodness or anything else. What separates the disciples and the crowds is not that the disciples are good people and the crowds are meh people. I mean, just look at the list here. Um, first off, let's deal with reputation. Do you notice how quick the second half of that list is? Look at verse 18. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Most of the people on that list, except for Judas at the end of it, we don't really know that much about. We encounter them once or twice in the Gospels. They get a verse or two, a single account where we get a little bit of illumination of who they are. And then once we get into the book of Acts, they're completely missing from the pages. If you study the first uh, century of the Christian church, there is a lot of traditional stories that involve these men. Thomas, for example, uh, traditionally went off on a mission trip to India and, and took Christianity there, but we don't have historical account. We don't have the clarity that we have. They're not people of reputation. In fact, here, the Galileans, which include most of the people here, most of the people here, the Galileans, uh, they have no reputation whatsoever. This is the backwoods of Israel. The only person who may be an exception to that is Judas Iscariot. Okay? Iscariot means from a particular place, and that place is in Judea. But everyone else is just from the farm culture of Israel. Even the ones here who we're familiar with, notice he uh, appointed the 12, and Simon heads the list who he gave the name Peter. And that's true. Anytime we find the disciples listed, Peter's name is first. In fact, Jesus gives Peter uh, 
this name, Peter, which means the rock. But when you look at Jesus' relationship with Peter in the Gospel of Mark, it's pretty rocky. In fact, the disciples in general, okay, it's not that here they step out of the crowds and from here on they get it. The rest of the Gospel of Mark, they're a total mess. They constantly misunderstand. They constantly fail. Here it mentions that James and John are known as the sons of thunder. Do you want to know why? It's because there's an occasion where an entire city comes to the gates and says, Jesus, we don't want you here. And so Jesus and his band of merry men, these 12, they turn and they walk down the road and they leave the city behind. And John and James kind of elbow Jesus and go, hey, we know that you're capable. Why don't you just call down fire from heaven and destroy that city? They say, why don't you just bring about the judgment on these people for rejecting you now? And he says, do you even know what spirit you speak with? He says, that's so far from my heart. That's so far from my mission. They don't get it. And so he nicknames them the sons of thunder because they're all noise. They're all wrath. Peter, you know, eventually speaks boldly like a stable rock. I will never leave you, Jesus. I'll never forsake you. If everyone else denies you, I will not. And then he does. The difference here is not in the quality of people. Here it says they are appointed, and that's what happens, is what makes these lives significant, miraculous, what gives them a strong reputation, what, what leads to all of the work that comes out of them is what Jesus does here in the appointing. He establishes them. He builds them. He empowers them. But I want you to notice a significant difference in verse 14. He appointed the twelve whom he also named apostles for three reasons, so that he might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority and to cast out demons. This is another, another difference here. And the first one I want you to notice is that little preposition there with what was the primary reason he called the disciples so that they would be with him now in a sense you could say that the crowds are with Jesus or Jesus is with the crowds but this is a distinction this is a difference okay to be with Jesus is different than to get near to Jesus to have your problems resolved to have your needs met Pastor Nick this morning talked about the idea of a relationship with God being a tangible one, one that we enjoy, one that we invest in. But the value here, what the disciples are called unto, is to be with Jesus. It's such a simple thing. But take the relationships in your life that involve distance and difficulty and weigh what that word with means. In fact, this is a word that runs throughout the entire New Testament in Jesus' high priestly prayer in the Gospel of John. He says, Father, my goal is that they would be with me and see my glory. This with is perpetual, it's permanent, it's eternal. But it's also obviously and inherently relational. For the next three years, these men go where Jesus goes. They sleep where Jesus sleeps. They eat 
all of their meals with Jesus. They listen to everything Jesus does. They serve with Jesus. That word with dominates what it means to be a disciple. And it's helpful for the distinction. The thing is, many of us have a culturally inherent sense of God. What I mean is, many of us grow up with this consciousness of a, a reality of God, right? In fact, there was a study done uh, in 2008 uh, by Christian Smith uh, on the youth who, let's see if it's 2008, who would basically be post-college now, this generation, okay? And he polled them on their religious beliefs in all sorts of different categories. And when he took the stats, he coined a phrase that sociologists still use to talk about American religion, moralistic therapeutic deism. Okay. Moralistic in the sense that most of us culturally, generally, believe there's a difference between right and wrong and that God cares about those differences. Therapeutic in the fact that we believe that God cares for us and for our problems and we have a tendency, whether in our own private, uh, you know, uh, uneducated prayer life or through some sort of religious engagement to bring those problems before him. And deism Right? This is this term from the 19th century which involves a view of God that he's not really that active or personally involved in life, but is distant but available. That's the general belief system that we've all grown up in. Okay? The difference here with the disciples, though, is that they are desiring just to be with Jesus, appointed just to be with Jesus. They don't just want God when they need him. They want to be with him. They don't just want God to meet their needs. They don't just want God for the power that he has. They want him to be present. They want a relationship. And let's reverse engineer this for a second. That's what God wants with us. That's what Jesus wants with his disciples. He doesn't just install them with power and say, now go. He says, no, come and be with me. And yes, like I said, there's an intensive version of this for the next three years that's happening, that's present, that's going on, that's different in the book of Acts. But we need to understand that this withedness, if you'll give me the phrase, changes things. It's not just, I'd really like to hang out with you. It's something more. Listen here in Acts chapter 4. Okay, let me remind you again. In the Gospel of Mark, the disciples are a mess. In fact, if the shorter ending of Mark chapter 16 is correct, and scholars are pretty sure it is, it ends with them running away from the truth that Jesus is alive. Not sure if they want to believe, okay? It ends in failure, but that's not because Mark doesn't know the ending. He wants to press how bad things really were in the moment and how resistant they were so that people like us would have hope. Okay, remember, Mark's gospel is written to a church that already knows the ending, who sat under the understanding of Peter. Seeing Peter fail says something, but it doesn't say all hope is lost. It says just the opposite. But I want you to listen here in Acts chapter 4. And so what happens is these same men, specifically Peter and John, they've been, uh, they've been preaching the name of Jesus Christ. They've been healing just like they were set out to do. And they've been called before the same religious leaders that put Jesus to death and told to no longer preach. And I want you to notice uh, here in verse 10, this is how Peter and John address these religious leaders, these enemies 
of Christianity. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that in the name of Jesus Christ, whom you Christ crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well, the one that they had healed. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Notice verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized what? That they had been with Jesus. Okay, they're astonished for two things here. One, because they can't believe how well-spoken and how bold these common uneducated men are. No degrees, no background, no qualifications, but they had been with Jesus. And even they, as the enemies of Jesus, could see that Jesus had rubbed off on them, that it had changed their lives. Okay? And here's the thing. When you study how the New Testament talks about life after becoming a Christian, consistently and regularly, there's this warning. Don't just try and do the right thing in your own strength. Don't just try and be good now that you take the name Christian. In fact, Paul warns the Galatians, he says, how could you be so foolish? Did you become a Christian in the flesh by your own work? And he said, now are you going to be perfected in the flesh? If God saved you radically and powerfully in his doing and not your own, how do you think you're going to change in the day to day? How do you think you're going to grow? It's the same thing. They had been with Jesus and that made all the difference and that's where growth and change and transformation happens in the Christian life. Christianity is not, Jesus died for you to deal with all of your past sins. Now straighten up and try again. It's Jesus died for your past sins. He was raised to empower you and give you the ability to be righteous through his presence and work. Now let him work. This is how Jesus puts it in the Gospel of John. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. He says, the vine can't bear fruit unless it's connected to the branches, right? You can't go out into a vineyard and cut, home, cut off a couple of branches and bring them home and go, I'm going to have a great uh, vintage this year. Right? It doesn't work. The whole way that Christianity works is that because of our touch point, our contact, not just close quarters with Jesus. That's the crowds. They're right there. They're present. They're healed, but they're not transformed. They're not yet in Christ. But when you're connected to Jesus, it changes you. It transforms you. This is why we often say that a relationship with Jesus is not merely religion. This is what we're talking about when we recognize here that God saves us, past tense. God is saving us, present tense. And God will save us, future tense. The withedness is what it means to be a Christian. Now I want you to notice that's not all. He called them so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. In other words, there's a responsibility that comes with being a Christian. Discipleship is not just following Jesus, it's also being a witness of Jesus. There's a proclamation here. There's an involvement. Like I said earlier, the disciples exist for the crowds, to 
to continue inviting them into what God has proclaimed. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. That's what Peter and John were doing in James, or excuse me, in Acts chapter 4. They're standing and they're proclaiming and they're inviting and they're drawing that line. Discipleship is, the, is different than being a student. The, the Greek language has a word for student, but that's not the word that's used by Jesus. The idea of a disciple is different than a student. A student studies a topic. A disciple follows a teacher. Okay. And on top of that, when we graft it with what we saw, the transformational nature of being with Jesus, uh, it's also being with Jesus in his ministry. This is how the book of Acts opens. Acts is an interesting study because it's a sequel. It's the Gospel of Luke, part two. Okay, and so it opens in this way. Luke says, the former account I made to you, Theophilus, that's the man who he wrote the book of Acts and the book of Luke too. He says, the former account I made to you, Theophilus, of the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. That's a really weird thing to say because when you read into chapter one, the only thing we see Jesus doing on the pages of the book of Acts is leaving. He just commissions his disciples and he's gone. But it would be right to understand the book of Acts as the acts of the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. They are the acts of Jesus. Jesus continues to work through the disciples. Okay. And we should recognize here that that's a different thing than the crowd and the disciples. The crowd are there to receive but the disciples have a vested interest in the work. They've joined the ranks. One of the phrases that Paul uses for himself as a missionary and a pastor is God's fellow laborer. He says, yeah, God and I are co-workers. You see, here's something we have to watch out for. There's only two categories here, right? Inside and outside, the crowds and disciples. I think a lot of us think there's three categories. There's outside, inside, and workers. There's outside, inside, and disciples. There's saved, and then there's ministers. The Bible knows no such distinction. It makes no difference, okay? And part of the reason is because this is the idea of what it means to be with Jesus. If you wanna be with Jesus, you have to go shoulder to shoulder in the work because that's what he's doing. There's a relationship, there's a correlation between these two things. And once again, the reason is not, not because God needs you. This is not, you know, a MLM scheme where Jesus is like, yeah, I'll save you, but you gotta save 10 of your friends first. That's not the idea. The whole idea is bound up in this idea that everything God does is so sovereign and so complex, he's the only one in the whole universe who can multitask. I know you think you can, you can't. You can change tasks very quickly, but God is so sovereign and so wise that the best thing for you in life is to be used by him, to be available to him. If you go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, before the fall, 
human beings were created with a purpose. And we touched on that broad purpose this morning, to glorify God. But how? In Genesis chapter 1, God creates human beings completely different than all the rest of life because they're made in God's image and he gives them a commission. And it's not just go and preach, right? It's not declare the message of salvation. That's not yet on the radar. That's not yet needed. It's two things. It's be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. In other words, spread out and rule on my behalf. Operate as my representatives. As the images of God image me, reflect me. Okay. We were invited into the work then. Could God have created a fully cultivated world? Of course he did. Instead, he created cultivators. But do you know what that is? That's the purpose all of us have this sense of what is the purpose of life. The reason we feel that way is because there is one. Do you think, you know, when you see the rabbits hopping around Capitol Hill, you probably don't, but I see them all the time. I can tell you where they live. Uh, do you think they ever stop and go, oh, what is my purpose in life? Do you think flowers have a midlife crisis? Why do humans do these things? The Bible would say it's because we're designed to. We were built for a purpose. We have a goal in mind. And so full salvation, full restoration is not just changing your status from condemned to safe. It's realigning yourself with the will of God. It's stepping back into your purpose. You need that. You're built for it. That's why God didn't settle with just saving people but making disciples. And the amazing thing is, like I said, there's this relationship that as we lean into that, as we do the work, just like being with Jesus changes us, the work changes us too. It's all by design. But here's the thing. Many people in the crowds would have seen Jesus' impact on their life as being significant. They'd have their own testimonies. They'd have their own eyewitness accounts. They could say, oh yeah, Jesus, I've met him. I've encountered him. I'll never be the same. But they were still on the outside. They weren't yet disciples. My fear is, my fear is that many of us mistake being close to the kingdom of God for being in it for having knowledge about Jesus to knowing Jesus, for following Jesus like the crowds did instead of following as a disciple. Jesus had a lot of fans, a lot of people who sacrificed their life to be closer to where he was, but didn't cross that threshold. And again, this morning, if you know that you've crossed it, if you've encountered that, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, if you've received through faith what he did for you, this is still an important message for you this morning. Because discipleship is your destiny. It's what God has for you. And just like any other relationship, like Nick said this morning, marriage is not just you put a ring on somebody's finger and you change the Facebook status and then your life doesn't change at all. The goal in Genesis is what? That the two would become one flesh. That takes time and effort 
it's not obvious or natural to make two lives one. But Paul tells us in Ephesians that that's just a small picture of what God is doing in Jesus Christ, right? He says, it's a great mystery, brothers and sisters, in Ephesians 5. In Genesis 2, it says that for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It's a great mystery, but I tell you that speaks of Christ and his church, that you would be with him, that you would be one with him, that you would be united with him. And there is a status change that's available by faith and instantaneously. But then there's what we call sanctification, which is where you start to live that out and enter in and deepen it. And let me just ask you the same thing that Nick asked you this morning. If you know that you're a Christian, if you've received the free gift of salvation through Jesus, are you living in it or just living with it? Is it just a marriage certificate up on the wall? Or is it a relationship that you're enjoying and entering into? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you call us to weigh where our hearts are really at and to know our true condition out of compassion and concern and not condemnation. Even with the enemies of the gospel, Lord, even with the Pharisees, you're shaking them by the shoulders saying, don't you understand your righteousness is as filthy rags? Don't you know that you're on the outside? You claim to speak for God and you don't even know him, but your desire is that they would see the truth and that they would come and be forgiven. And so, Lord, we can investigate our own hearts this morning without fear. But even if it's without fear, it must be with eyes open. It must be with sobriety. I pray for everyone here, Lord, help us to know where we're at. And I thank you, Lord, that the way that you designed salvation, the way that you went about setting things right, is not figure it out, set it right, and then you can be with me. And it's not even, if you can just figure out to do the right things, then I'll leave you alone. But it was, come, be with me, and be transformed. Pray, Lord, that we would lean into that transformation, that we would know what it means to be your disciple, not just as a concept or a label, but as a life. And we just surrender every area this morning, Lord. We're like the sons of thunder, our heart doesn't reflect yours. We're like Peter, we think we can stand on our own and we can't. We're like the rest of the disciples. We see ourselves as being, you know, competing for the front seat in your kingdom instead of being a servant of all. Lord, there's so much work to be done, but we thank you, Lord, that he who began the work in us will be faithful to complete it till the day of Christ Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we would rest in and rejoice in and enjoy and even work in our relationship with you, Lord, because that is life. You said in the Gospel of John, this is eternal life, that you would know God and his Son whom he has sent. Help us to do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.